TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 72. This episode is brought to you by the Saris Cycling Group. For over 25 years, Saris has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. Like Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a city that rebuilt itself with a focus on bikes after the 2008 flood. You can read up on Cedar Rapids' story over at sarisparking.com slash bike nerds. And while you're there, get entered to win a public toolbox. Saris is giving away one this month to one lucky listener. All you have to do is visit sarasparking.com slash bike nerds and enter your email address to win. Again, that's sarasparking.com slash bike nerds. Sarah, how have you been? Yeah, I saw some photos of you and down at the works with Roshan Austin riding some bike share bikes. Yes, I had the privilege of riding a bike share bike from downtown to the works in South Memphis and share with their community connectors who are South Memphis residents who promote really awesome services and projects to their neighbors via word of mouth and hosting events. And it was awesome. People rode bikes. I got to talk about bike share, which I always love. And I got to bike from downtown to South Memphis, the middle of my work day. All right. I have two things to ask you about. First of all, so these are like neighborhood ambassadors, Yes. Are they volunteers through the works? No, they are compensated nice. by the works. Yeah, it's really cool. They have a very kind of large, like, topics. Like, I think they're throwing a baby shower, a community baby shower for mothers that are expecting. Um, that was one of their ideas to implement. And they're going to talk about bike share. They're also doing, like, door-to-door surveying. So they've got iPads they can use it that way. Yeah. Um, it's a pro- it's a program that just launched. And I think it's a pilot program through they have a strengthening like livable communities program. And um, so, yeah, I'm excited to get to know everyone involved. Cool. How did they like the bike share bike? Everyone loved it. Yeah. Was anyone like popping wheelies in the parking lot? Just you? There was discussion of popping wheelies. <laughs> I didn't want to show out. Okay. They had just met me. <laughs> Um, I think the next time I'm out there, there'll definitely be some tricks. Awesome. Uh, second thing I want to ask about, so, and this is more of a comment maybe for you to reply to, but, uh, from your office to the works office via bike is not actually that far. No, it took me probably 15 to 17 minutes. Yeah. Right in like a super slow pace. Yeah. On like a 56 pound bike. I wouldn't say super slow. Well, I, okay. I'll take that back. But it's not that far is the is what I'm trying to get at. No, not you, at all. You basically just, you basically like roll out of your office and roll downhill straight to the works office. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple like weird like intersections you have to get through that probably take a little bit of time. 
they're more they more take time because it like they are confusing i always think i should turn left and i should turn right <laughs> so i always end yeah. up it may maybe it could take me like 13 minutes if i didn't get lost along the way nice what's going on in your world I don't have any questions prepared for you. No, it's fine. Things are going well. I've been doing a lot of work lately um, with U.S. Census data, helping um, our director of research, Dr. Jennifer Bouldry, on some big data projects and that, that we're working on right now. So I've had my, my head in the weeds a little bit lately, um, more so than I probably normally would be. But it's been it's great. Just staying busy and getting ready for the fall. You know, thinking about next year. I mean, 2018 is pretty much here already. So basically, happy new year, Kyle. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. Happy new year to you. Um, yeah. So just you know, sort of thinking about that stuff that far in advance and doing some planning and uh, staying busy. Ethan starts school this week, so we got like you know back to school stuff going on. Uh, one interesting thing that happened yesterday is. I was doing some work stuff at the kitchen table. The kids were watching some cartoons on the TV. All of a sudden, I heard this big pop, and I looked around. I didn't know what it was, but then I saw all this like smoke coming out of the back of the television. And oh gosh! Apparently, our you know ten year old TV had finally bit the dust. It like popped, and like this weird like pink smoke started coming out the back. So I I quickly unplugged it and got the kids away. Yeah, so we went and bought a new TV yesterday. That's how that goes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, you hear about that kind of thing happening, and then it happens to you. Yeah. It only took 10 years for it to happen to me. Yeah. Was it, like, scary? Not particularly. It was just weird. Like there was no, There was no indication that it was about to, like, you know, go out. But that's how how life goes. That is how it goes. I'm always waiting for my wine fridge to explode. (laughs) It occasionally makes like a sound that can't be right, and I'm always like, I should unplug it, and then I'm like, oh, but then I'd have to move the wine to the real fridge, mm-hmm. and then the wine would wouldn't be cold anymore. So I'm just gonna wait for it to blow up. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it did. Very responsible. Yeah, yeah. I uh, biked th- this morning with friends. Nice. And we explored, and then we're admonished for doing this, explore the Mid-South Greenway, which is a 26-mile paved greenway project that just got kicked off in Memphis. And there's like, I don't know how long, a paved portion right along that connects to the Mississippi River that's already paved. And they've got bike racks installed and picnic tables. Oh, this it is, looks this really is, This cool. is like up by the Wolf River? Influence Park. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. So this is by... The Mississippi. It'll go along the Wolf River. But it's where the Wolf River intersects the Mississippi. Sure. It's you know the, more than I do. It's the confluence of the two rivers. Oh, my God. I'm just, I was always like, Confluence Park just, is such a strange name. I'm just blowing minds today, apparently. Dang. <laughs> <It's> where, <laughs> oh, I feel foolish. <laughs> that's where the two come. Uh, yeah, so it's 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 under construction. So you were admonished because you weren't supposed to be there? Yeah, so we were like, oh, cool, like, sure, there's, it's blocked off and there's a ton of cones, but we'll wheedle our way through. 
when we were like ooing and aahing, then we came across a tree that had been like, taken down in a storm, and there was a man there doing a site visit, and he said, you don't belong here. And we were like, well, you're out here. And he was like, yeah, I work here. I'm doing my site visit. You do not belong here. And we were like, okay. Oh, <laughs> Happy <goodness>. Sunday. Bye. <laughs> It was fun. A little living on the edge. Yeah, but maybe not like the, the edge edge. No. I, I mean, I'm not a big rule. I mean, I break a lot of rules, but I'm not a big flagrant rule breaker like that. I see. I like but, to do it in the but, dark night. But you were with a group of people. All that sort of happens. Peer pressure happens. Yes. It is what it is. It is what it is. Hey, on this episode, I think we've got a real treat for our listeners. This is drumroll. I hope everyone has listened to us banter for the big reveal. Though I guess if you're watching, listening to the episode, you would know who it was anyway. But. That's true. That's true. It's not a surprise if you click on the episode to listen. <laughs> uh, but uh, since, the, we, since we started the podcast, we have received requests uh, both from our past guests and our listeners to to have this person on. And I'm, I'm pleased to announce that we had on uh, the show Dr. Adonia Lugo uh, from out in the L.A. area. And Adonia did not disappoint um, in terms of the interview or the content. Um, uh, you know, and she's just, uh, you know, it, there's, there's, there's a reason she's the number one most requested guest that we've ever had. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty evident, I think, in the stories and the thoughts that she shares with us. Yes, it was fantastic. I cannot wait to hear the comments from our listeners for this episode. And just uh, as a heads up to the episode, I actually recorded the interview from inside Denver's train station. So multimodal people, what, what <laughs> bike nerds. So I just, I got caught on a, uh, I was caught on a flight back that was delayed a little bit. So I had to take a later train. It wasn't going to get me back to the house in time to record the episode. So I decided just to hang out in the Denver train station and do the call there. So my sound, my sound's a little bit weirder than normal, um, is what I would say, um, on that. Not bad. You can totally understand everything I'm saying. I was in a pretty quiet spot, but it's just a little bit different than, uh, the sound quality that our listeners have come to expect. So, uh, I know. Thanks I know, for your I know, patience. I know you everyone. care a lot. You care a lot about this. <laughs> I do. It, it's important to me because it's important to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, without further ado, I think we should just roll straight into the interview uh, with Dr. Adonia Lugo. Let's hit it. So, Adonia, welcome to the Bike Nerds podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking time out of your Friday to chat with us. You are, I don't know if Kyle was shared this with you, but you are our most requested podcast guest. So you've got a lot of fans. That's, yeah, Kyle did share that. <laughs> uh, I was like, wow. And thank you guys for following up. I know you had originally reached out to me, um, like, the beginning of the year. And this has just been a, a, a very busy um, year for me. So I appreciate the, the later opportunity popping back up again to participate. Yeah, I noticed I noticed Adonia that your that your side hustles have side hustles at this point in time. Yeah, I'm a uh, I, I'm, I'm in what I think is a good place where things are kind of spinning off in their own directions. But it also means that um, 
I sometimes say yes to more things than I should, which I, I'm, I'm not the only person who experiences this. Um, but I'm actually in the process right now of wrapping up my main gig at the end of August and um, putting some thought into what big things do I want to do next? And so that's been really fun thinking about having an opportunity to take a little break and then re-engage um, with something different that integrates some of the things that I want to have in my uh, professional life. So um, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> so what is your main big thing? So um, right now I am working in a global sustainability resource center at UC Irvine, which is um, about 50 miles south of Los Angeles, where I live. And um, I'm from Orange County, which is where UC Irvine is located. And so um, I got the opportunity at the beginning of the year to start uh, going and participating in some of the programs they do focused on um, developing student leadership in sustainability on campus. And so I go down there three days a week. I do a bike train commute. Um, which means I spend four hours a day commuting on those days, uh, which is kind of a lot. And so that's why I am nearing the end of my, my time uh, going down to that campus three days a week, because it turns out, so I, I went to grad school down there um, and also lived in L.A., and so I used to do this same commute a few years ago, and it turns out doing this commute in my 30s is different from doing that <laughs> commute in my 20s, and I hate, I hate that that's true, but it is. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, yeah, so it's been really fun. I mean, I, I, um, I have experienced, uh, you know, teaching, being in the classroom and all that uh, in college settings. And so this has been a way of engaging with students more as interns and fellows, uh, which is actually pretty different. Um, sometimes in the classroom, people are not as creative because they don't want to, you know, stand out, be the, the one that is different from others, or, you know, it seems like the teacher's pet or says the wrong thing. There's actually, I have found, um, you know, at, at a UC campus, University of California campus, which obviously that's a competitive system. A lot of the students who get there are, uh, super high achievers and they put a lot of pressure on themselves. So sometimes the classroom is not as, uh, open-ended a space as uh, I would like it to be. So this has been fun. Instead of teaching, being at this on-campus center and advising some student projects where I've gotten to see um, a different a different side of um, these undergraduates than I did as a, a teaching assistant at that same campus years ago. So um, so that's been really cool. And, and I've been working on learning more about um, the environmental justice field because something that really inspired my um, participation in bicycling and transportation advocacy um, was a, a real uh, curiosity about, you know, how do um, racial and class inequalities map onto our streets and how people interact in our streets. And that is um, 
a question, if you kind of broaden out from just streets to environments, um, that is a really core question in environmental justice. And even though that was something I was kind of vaguely aware of when I got started in my work back in 2008, um, it's not till now that I've really been able to steep myself in, um, you know, where are environmental justice movements um, coming from, what are they working towards, and how are um, university campuses, one site in which, you know, you're helping people to formulate um, an understanding of, of their own backgrounds, how they related to nature and environment, um, and what that means in terms of becoming a sustainability professional. Um, so, so my primary gig has been this UC Irvine Global Sustainability Resource Center. But this year, I've also Gosh, when the year started, I had three jobs. So now I'm down to one, which is cool. Um, but I was I was teaching um, a class in a regenerative studies master's program at Cal Poly Pomona and also um, in an urban sustainability master's program at Antioch University here in L.A. And so this has been a, a really a, a good uh, a good year for seeing more where different students at different levels are around, you know, what, what does diversity mean and sustainability? How do we bring social justice into that work? And now once I wrap things up, I'm hoping to start figuring out how to take some of those lessons I've been learning and, and bring them back into um, active transportation. Adonia, if, if I could take it back just a little bit, I'm, I'm curious to know how you got into anthropology in general and whether or not were you, were you doing social justice work and then chose to study anthropology as a result of that? Or did you did you fall into anthropology and then begin working in sort of the social justice issues as a result of that? I got started in anthropology when I was in um, undergrad. And the reason I was studying anthropology at first was that I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, I grew up in, as I said, Southern California, and um, we did a lot of traveling around the Southwest when I was a teenager, and so getting to see um, the the history of archaeological sites there and the the current day, um, you know, lives of people living on reservations, and that just really piqued my my interest. And so I went into college thinking I wanted to become an archaeologist. But of course, I, I went to a, a small liberal arts college, so they didn't have archaeology classes, because that's pretty specific. Um, but they did have cultural anthropology. And um, I ended up really liking that field. And so within anthropology, um, there are what's called the four fields. There's cultural anthropology, which looks at living societies. There's archaeology, which tries to understand past societies through their, um, you know, artifacts. There's physical anthropology, which is actually looking at humans uh, and the body and, um, you know, how that's changed over time. And then there's linguistics, which looks at language. And so um, at my school, they offered classes in cultural anthropology and linguistics. And, um, but yeah, as I said, I ended up really enjoying cultural anthropology. You can learn a lot about people through talking to them. Um, and I think that archaeologists learn a lot about people through analyzing the material record. But I think that for me personally, I, I kind of like conversation more. Um, it's a little more fun <laughs> than <laughs> digging. Not that I would know, because I never ended up going on an archaeological dig. 
Um, <laughs> but so I, so I really connected with anthropology and um, especially my senior year, um, I did a, a thesis project about the the way that different groups coming into Southern California defined the proper use of space here. So I got really into theories about um, the social production of space, um, you know, all of the potentialities that are contained in an, an environment and then how the different people who live there um, relate to those and um, decide, you know, what is the the right way to, to behave. And, um, and then uh, after college, I, I had gone to school in Portland, and that's where I became a bike commuter. Um, I, I was out of school for a couple of years and felt sort of like I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, and I, you know, I, I am a, an intellectual nerdy person. So I was like, well, I guess I should go get a PhD. That's what lots of people like me go and do. And um, when you're applying for anthropology PhD programs, you come up with a project that you'd like to do that is basically like your your thing that you're proposing um, through your application process. And so I decided I would do a project about um, how rock music got popular in Mexico in the 1950s and 60s um, and how that developed into the genre rock and espanol. Um, and you know, what, what rock music means in Mexico today. And, um, that was based on my own personal interest in rock and Espanol and the fact that, um, we have this like family history of my parents having been in a rock band in Mexico in the, um, late sixties and early seventies. And so I grew up, you know, hearing about that and, um, it just seemed like it would be fun to, look at how power and culture worked in Mexico in the mid 20th century um, and how rock music was an example of something coming from the U.S., which, you know, was not, they were not, (laughs) the government in Mexico at that time was not in support of things coming from the U.S. into Mexico. There was a very strong nativist uh, agenda um, for what their culture was going to be, which is really strongly expressed in um, the work of Mexican muralists like Diego Rivera and the work of Frida Kahlo. There were all these people who were really celebrating indigenous heritage and trying to make a make an, an official culture for Mexico that was based on um, the indigenous and mestizo past. And so rock music, this import from the North, um, meant something there that it, it didn't mean here in the U S. And so I wanted to trace that out. And my ultimate goal was I wanted to go to Mexico city and hang out with my favorite rock band, Cafe Tacuba. So <laughs> when I was applying to anthro PhD programs, I was like, this is what I will do. Sure. This sounds cool. This, you know, I knew I wanted to come back to California. I was living in, you know, Oregon and, um, so I put that project together, got into the program at UC Irvine. Um, then it turned out that the professor I'd wanted to work with there had actually moved to UC Berkeley over the summer between me accepting um, their offer and starting school. So I immediately kind of stepped in and was like, oh, I guess this isn't going to be quite what I expected. Um, and then 
I ended up being really homesick for Portland. I went through a fair amount of culture shock, which is also something I'd gone through when I first moved to Portland when I was 17 to start college, um, because it's a pretty different place than where I grew up. Um, but somehow, you know, the thing that symbolized how I felt like a fish out of water, even though I was back in the place close to the place where I'd grown up, um, was the the way that I thought riding a bicycle was something normal to do. And, you know, I actually, uh, my partner at the time and I chose where we were going to live in Southern California based on how similar the built environment there was to Portland's, um, which was the city of Long Beach, which has a, a really regular grid system, um, not too many hills in the central area, um, the same kind of, uh, urban density. And, and, um, so we just thought, oh, riding a bike in Portland is easy. Riding a bike in Long Beach will be easy. And, um, that turned out to not be true because there is a much more welcoming street culture, uh, that has been cultivated over many years in Portland that, does not exist as much in Southern California. So, so I was starting, I mean, I was going to my classes and, you know, having fun with theory and whatnot in my first year of grad school. But, um, I was also feeling really alienated from where I lived and was starting to notice a lot of stuff that I hadn't noticed when I was growing up, because when you grow up in a place, you don't necessarily think too much about how people live there. You just kind of do it. Um, and there were, there was, I mean, one reason I had chosen to go to college in another state was that I knew growing up that there was a lot of racism in the region I'm from. And because I'm from a mixed family where my dad's from Mexico and my mom is white from Southern California, um, we were really, we couldn't, we couldn't just sort of ignore the racism and live on one side of it um, and do our best. We were just kind of constantly crossing these racial boundaries and noticing um, the, the fact that those boundaries were there. Um, and so I really had wanted to get away from that when I, when I went to college. And so coming back, because I did want to come back to uh, my, you know, region where I was from, uh, all of a sudden I could see how that, that devaluing of people because of what they look like or what race they are um, happened in transportation too. It happened in the streets. And I was like, wow, yes, I participated in that. I remember when I got my driver's license and my mom was buying a new car. Um, it was like, of course, I absolutely must have my own car because I didn't want to be waiting for the bus anymore. It's really embarrassing waiting for the bus. And, um, where I grew up, I mean, I know lots of people who have stories about, um, you know, a bicycle being a childhood uh, experience of independence and getting to ride around their neighborhoods. Um, I didn't I didn't do that. We were a walking family. So I did. I did a lot of exploring of my neighborhood in town on foot, but not on a bike. Um, so anyway, it's like living in Portland, becoming a bike commuter, bringing that expectation back to Southern California with me. Um, just caused me to notice a lot of different stuff and, and how many intersections there were of um, these kind of inequality issues with how we get around here and and how this, the, the status of driving is such a hugely important thing for people um, in a way that 
really overshadows the um, fact that we have excellent weather conditions for getting around outside of a car. And so I really, I, I, I basically just like, with the encouragement of some professors I was in dialogue with um, throughout my original project and started designing a dissertation project around um, sustainable transportation. And I knew I wanted to try and impact the the cultural problems I was seeing, um, all these biases against um, traveling outside of a car. And um, yeah, so by the end of my first year, so this was like the spring of 2008, um, I knew I wanted to, to figure out how to explore those issues. And so um, anthropology just was the field I already was in and um, gave me some useful ways of, of investigating those problems. Adonia, how do you, what's your definition of sustainable transportation? Kind of what does that lens look like from your work? I use that term when... Um, I'm talking about active transportation, but to audiences that don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. That's generally when I refer to sustainable transportation because, and I'm not 100% sure what it means to people. Maybe they hear transit in that or like electric vehicles. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm aware that um, for lots of people outside of the the biking and walking world, active transportation doesn't, doesn't mean anything. So I'll say sustainable transportation in those situations. Adonia, I was reading in your bio online um, in my my pre-interview research, um, and you mentioned it earlier also that in some ways you identify more as an environmentalist than you do as sort of a cycling advocate, and you mentioned sort of your growing interest in environmental justice movements, and I'm I'm curious, I'm just curious, like, what does, what does being sort of an environmentalist mean for you? Um, and the reason, sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure that child is doing just fine. Uh, the reason I ask is because I, I, I think about all of the interviews that Sarah and I have done so far with people who are working in and around transportation and bicycling Um, We talk to people about the motivations for sort of why they're doing this work and the reasons that they're engaged. I think I could probably count on one hand how many of them have mentioned the environment as a very direct uh, source of motivation for them. And in fact, now that I think about it more closely, the, the ones that have given us that kind of answer have all been from, I think, the L.A. region. So I'm 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 just curious to know what what does that mean for you to sort of approach this from an environmental standpoint, and do you see that as being unique to others working in this space? I think that um, so I I have like the reason I have that stated on my um, in my bio on my website is because when I so when I was first getting started with um, wanting to understand and impact the cultural biases toward um, traveling outside of a car in Southern California. Um, The fact that I was already a bicycle commuter and I was starting to learn about um, how bicycle advocates, you know, that there was this whole realm of bicycle advocacy and and people were um, going to cities and asking for particular kinds of infrastructure changes um, and street design changes. That ended up being a sort of convenient group 
like an accessible group of people that I could learn about and study. And so a lot of the um, work that I got involved in over the next few years was very centered around um, bicycling and promoting bicycling. And, um, and, you know, I, I totally believed in that. It was like, yeah, let's, let's make um, bicycling is something more appealing for people. And then um, over the years, as I as I learned more about the bike movement and bicycle advocacy and um, the strategies that were uh, really at the core of that organized work, um, I started to kind of focus more and more on issues of diversity within the bike movement itself and, um, you know, who was participating, who wasn't participating, what was this gap between the people who were using bicycles to get around because they couldn't afford to travel in other ways versus people who were enthusiastically choosing bicycling as this like solution, um, to various kinds of problems, whether, you know, it was like health or, um, environment or traffic or whatever. And, um, so, so my core focus shifted around 2013 from, from, or maybe even earlier from being a, a bicycle advocate in the sense of promoting bicycling to being more of, um, an anthropologist of the bike movement. So looking at what we could do to be expanding, um, who felt comfortable, um, in that bike movement space. And so, um, because of that shift and because of the, the work that I've done, um, since about 2013, more specifically focused on like, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion within bicycle advocacy, um, and thus bicycle planning and bicycle policy. Um, I, I started to, realize that if if the thing I was most, you know, excited about promoting or the thing that was most important to me was just bicycling, then that was going to make it hard for me to see a lot of the other things that were going on in, um, in people's lives. Like there's all these people who relate to bicycling in, in different ways and it represents something different to them and it fits into a, a different kind of um, transportation hierarchy. And um, I started to realize that the thing that even though I had had been, you know, part of some really exciting projects related to bicycling, the thing that had been motivating me from the get go was more this um, this power question, this this longstanding um frustration that I had growing up where I did and being who I am with, you know, why do we decide that some people are worth less than other people? You know, why, why do we, (laughs) what the heck is up with humans that we do that? And, um, and then how do we express that spatially? How do we come in and say, well, your group is using this land wrong and now my group's going to come in and show you all how it should be done. And um, the thing is, if that's the core problem that I'm seeing, that's actually something that gets promoted within the bike movement too. And so more and more, I felt kind of um, unsure of how to both promote bicycling um, 
and be calling attention to the new kinds of colonialism and displacement that were taking place in urban settings. And so, um, so for me, like it's been a process of sort of clarifying, like, Hmm, what is, what is my connection to, um, this bicycle stuff? What is my connection to, um, kind of other, other, movements and struggles related to improving people's lives and decreasing inequality and oppression. And so, um, so yeah, so for me, my core problem that I'm interested in working on has to do with, you know, the, the imposition of one group's values on another group's, um, existence and, and land and space. And, um, where I grew up, uh, there was a lot of, I mean, I grew up in a very exurban environment um, that happened to be, that happened to have encompassed an old colonial Spanish mission town. So um, I'm from a town called San Juan Capistrano that was originally settled by the Spanish in 1776. And the reason they settled there was because there was already a village of people who were living there, um, the people called the Ahashaman. And um, so I, I, I'm not part of that um, indigenous group, but I grew up in a town that, you know, was really tied to their experience of um, successive waves of colonialism. And then within my own family, my mom's um, ancestors came here in the 1890s, came to Southern California in the 1890s and um, were able to buy land. And um, so I, I grew up kind of hearing this this tragic story of like, oh, the ranch land the family once owned, you know, keeps getting turned into these horrible subdivisions out in San Bernardino. And um, then when I was uh, a kid, my grandma and great grandma who lived together in a house um, in a city called Newport Beach, um, both passed away and their house got sold and that was the family home. And um, so we were really sad to lose that. And then, you know, a couple years ago that got bulldozed and replaced. So like I grew up watching the land get eaten by this really crass kind of development. And um, and I, I just have a really strong sense of that there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with how you know, we come in and instead of finding out who's already around and what's going on, we sometimes are carrying these really strong um, uh, ideas about like what should happen, like a pretty prescriptive notion of, you know, how a space should be used or um, that kind of thing. And the more that I got involved in sustainability work and um, bicycle work, the more I was like, oh, that dynamic is here too. There's like absolutely a tendency for environmentalist groups or bicycle groups or whoever um, to come in and say, you know, the way that things are happening here is wrong and it should be this other way. And there's, I mean, lots of reasons why we do need to be shifting how we use resources and, um, you know, in the case of transportation, how we travel and um, what the what the costs are of that. But um, for me personally, I'm I'm just really. I would love to see um, these different movement spaces become places to 
reject the uh, colonial idea that a group of people who live somewhere is not equipped to actually, you know, define what their problems are and what their solutions are. And um, so to me, I mean, to me, that's what it means to be an environmentalist is to is to be um, concerned about, you know, the state of our shared <laughs> environment that we live in and to also um, be concerned about, you know, who who has set the agenda for what that place is like and who will be setting the agenda for what that place is like. And then I try to bring that sort of awareness and work into bicycling, but, um, but I don't see bicycling as my, my starting point. I'm interested in the kind of how city of lights got started and then it's transformation to the multicultural communities for mobility. Um, and maybe perfect timing, our podcast that we, um, released this week was with, um, someone doing, in partnership with Do Lee, Jean Dang, doing kind of work around food delivery cyclists and bike advocacy in New York City. And um, I love kind of the story of City of Lights. So if you could share kind of background on that, that'd be great. Sure, yeah. So um, City of Lights was a project that got started in the fall of 2008. Um, so as I was saying earlier, I was really noticing that as I learned about this, this field of bicycle advocacy that existed, um, I could also see that the, the people who were um, going to city hearings and um, promoting certain ideas about street design to support bicycling, um, not everybody who was out there riding a bike was, was represented in those spaces. And a lot of the people in Southern California who ride bikes and all over the country um, are people who just they just can't afford to drive. They'd actually way rather be um, driving probably, but they're having to stick with this thing that may be uncomfortable and may be, you know, hard for them, dangerous for them just because they can't afford to do something else. And so um, a lot of those people are, are people of color and men of color here in Southern California. I was really noticing in particular um, a lot of Latino men uh, who were riding, you know, just, cheap mountain bikes around. And I was also really curious about how um, lots of the people I saw riding in this way were also riding on sidewalks as opposed to in streets. And because I had learned to be a bike commuter in Portland, um, which is a city that has a pretty strong take the lane culture, um, I was like, it's wrong to ride on the sidewalk. You should be riding in the street. And so I was like, how come all these people are riding on sidewalks? Seems like there um, there just seemed to be not only a, a racial difference in terms of who was advocating for bicycling and who was actually doing it, but also a difference in terms of um, whether you wanted bicycling to be like a, a statement, you know, like I'm out here and my body matters versus you were just like, hey, not trying to not trying to be in anybody's way, not trying to cause problems, just happen to be on a bicycle till I can get something better worked out, which seemed to be the message of riding on the sidewalk. Um, so I was curious about these things and I wanted to learn more about, you know, um, the experience of 
people who were riding out there um, and who weren't coming to, you know, events related to um, like the LA County Bicycle Coalition or LACBC, which was a a group I started participating in in um, 2008. And at an LACBC event, I met someone else who was um, thinking about these same questions, a woman named Allison Manos, who uh, was doing an internship at LACBC. And um, she was a student at UCLA at the time and was focusing on sociology and um, ethnic studies. And uh, she was really interested in urban planning and how people get involved in the urban planning process. And so um, she and I started talking. We were also collaborating together on um, another project, which was designing the open street event, Ciclo Via. And so we started to be spending more time together talking. And we're like, how do we... How, how do we get at this separation we're seeing, this divide between um, these low-income Latino cyclists and the people who are um, participating at LACBC? And um, so then Allison brought in a friend of hers named Andy Rodriguez, who um, was basically like, uh, maybe you should just go start talking to people. And that can be how you find out more. And so um, Allison applied for a grant along with um, someone else who was on the staff at LACBC at the time, Dorothy Lay, to get some um, bike lights from Planet Bike because uh, we figured, you know, people aren't really going to want to talk to us if we don't <laughs> have something to give them. So we thought maybe if we're distributing bike lights, that could be a way to um, engage with people. Plus, there is the issue of, you know, lots of people not having lights and um, being less visible. So so we got this grant, which was really cool. And so um, at the end of 2008, we started um, distributing them. And we had like a number of volunteers who were doing that. And we had like a few short questions we wanted them to ask people. And then um, we realized that just stopping people on the street uh, isn't a great way to engage with them further. Um, it's a pretty, that's usually a pretty short interaction. Plus, we felt a little weird about racial profiling in terms of, you know, deciding who we were going to stop and offer a light to. So uh, we started brainstorming about, you know, what's another model we could use. And um, we decided to start calling worker centers um, in the area to see if, you know, maybe we could go to a a worker center. And um, while people were there waiting for jobs or taking classes, you know, we could give out lights, maybe do some light bike repair. We didn't know what would develop. And um, I think the first place we called was like, sure, yeah, you can come over on Friday afternoon and um, we'll figure it out. And that was a place called um, Caresen, the Central American Resource Center, which has a um, just a small little uh, worker center in the parking lot of a Home Depot in the MacArthur Park neighborhood in Los Angeles, which is a, a central L.A. neighborhood just um, west of downtown. And so uh, we started going there on Fridays, installing bike lights, and um, I started being able to talk to people a bit more about, you know, Hey, so what's it like being on a bike? What do you think about stuff? Um, and for me, since I was doing this as part of my ethnographic research, um, I really just wanted to learn more about, you know, uh, what was on people's minds and, uh, and how did they see bicycling. And um, for some other people in City of Lights, they were really interested in figuring out how we could bring some of the knowledge of um 
these day laborers who rode bikes into the bike master plan update process that was going on. And so um, they started doing different activities related to like mapping and um, finding out from people what routes they used. And, um, and then we're able to, to do some, some actual, um, you know, incorporation of that information and um, advocacy work around prioritization of where bike lanes would go once the master plan was updated. And so Allison Manos was really, really central in all of that. She had become a staff member at LACBC by that time and um, stewarded a lot of that work. But um, for me, for my anthropological stuff, um, I, I figured out pretty quickly, like, oh, this is, we don't need, we don't have a lot of education to offer here. I mean, we could do bike repair and we started doing that in conjunction with um, the local bike repair co-op, the bicycle kitchen. We had people come and do workshops and stuff like that. But, you know, everybody I was talking to, and these were mostly men who were immigrants from Central America. Um, they, they knew about all of the, you know, great benefits of bicycling like they knew that it was good for the environment and and all that kind of stuff and so um so there wasn't like a a different idea of what bicycling represented for them in that way but more and more I could see that um it just didn't for me it just didn't feel like I was really going to be helping that, that, that they weren't defining their bike commute as a problem like these were men who um had some pretty big <laughs> uh, structural barriers to being healthy and safe um, in their lives, such as, you know, being homeless or having to travel a really long way between where they could afford to live and where they were going to find work. And, um, and the fact that they rode a bike was not, for most people, not really a core part of their identity. I mean, there were a few people who were excited about it and, um, you know, were core participants in, in City of Light's work. But um, for me, the, the main takeaway was, huh, there's other kinds of vulnerability that um, these men are, are experiencing. And I can see why, you know, getting involved in bicycle advocacy would not be high on their list. And I also um, had my question about sidewalks answered pretty quickly, which was, you know, I think it was, someone who had moved from Guatemala city. And, um, he said, you know, down there, we didn't even have sidewalks. So biking was pretty, pretty harrowing. And then you come up here and there's these big open areas where you can be riding. And, and so I learned like, Oh, okay. So for lots of people, a sidewalk is kind of like how I would think of a cycle track. It's already there. It's already infrastructure that's available to be used that gets you out of the way of cars. And so lots of people, um, you know, make sense to them to use it. And it is true that here in LA, we have lots and lots of places where sidewalks are very empty. Um, so, so, so I think that doing that engagement um, helped me to understand, it helped me to, to see that what I could do with my dissertation project was more around the organized group of bicycle advocates. Um, it didn't feel to me like there was a, a strong direction I could go around bicycling and um, people in this much more like vulnerable um, life situation. And so, um, so I, I, 
I wrapped up my field work in 2011 and um, moved up to Seattle, which is actually where I wrote my dissertation. Um, so I wasn't involved in LA bike stuff after that. But um, City of Lights continued on as an educational program and um, doing advocacy work and all kinds of cool stuff. And then um, ended up becoming its own organization called Multicultural Communities for Mobility in 2012. Um, And so now, um, since I came back to L.A. in 2015, um, I'm on the, the MCM board um, so that's been, it's been interesting reengaging with a project that um, I knew in a really different state and kind of learning about what, what its priorities are today and what it looks like. Adonia, I've been really personally, I think, uh, impacted by, you know, the work and the criticism that you and others have offered about the leadership in the bicycling advocacy movement. I, even if I think further back, you know, sort of before I was aware of you and I think about the role that anthropologists played in sort of shaping my understanding of community engagement work. I, I can think back to like grad school and I think while I was in planning school, I, I'd had the opportunity to take some electives in the anthropology department. And I remember taking, uh, there were two classes in particular, an urban anthropology class and an environmental anthropology class that I took that really, I think in a lot of ways shaped how I, I thought about and reflected and criticized what I was learning at planning school in a really real way. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, from a, again, from a personal perspective, the, that perspective the anthropologists offer to this sort of white male dominated thing called bike advocacy has been really important in helping grow the movement. And I, and I'm, I love how you described earlier this, this shift in your sort of, where you saw yourself and the role that you played within the movement. And I know now one of the most exciting things I think that's happening right now is centered around the untokening. Um, And back in April, you and others helped to sort of synthesize some of the original thoughts that came out of the first untokening gathering that happened in Atlanta last fall. Um, I know you've got some plans for the the untokening coming up, but uh, could you share for our listeners in just a few minutes, you know, sort of what some of that synthesis work, some of the work that you presented back in April around what the bicycle advocacy movement could do from a leadership perspective? Yeah, let's see. So, um, so the untokening is a collective that got started um, last year when um, there are a number of people who, uh, who like me, have tried to um, really, what is the word? There's a, there's a lot of work happening these days around um, the idea of equity and the idea of um, making sure that people who historically have not gotten as many public resources um, actually are getting supported and um, taken care of. And so what kind of work do we need to do to change how public resources are distributed so that they're not, you know, really going to um, benefit certain communities over others? And, you know, that can be seen both as a, a problem in terms of benefits and in terms of harms. Um, and that's really the core idea of environmental justice is that the way we distribute environmental harms in this country um, is and in this world is not 
equitable. We put more burdens on um, communities of color and low-income communities. And so, um, so that that idea is is out there. Um, in some places, it's an accepted uh, notion that's just a core part of you know how do you design projects, how do you design um, advocacy work, and um, in the bike movement, there started to be more interest in. Um, equity as a as a, a thing as a, a problem that needed to be addressed it seems like in the um, early 20 teens um, and I got pulled into that conversation at the national level in about 2013 um, when I got invited to be part of an equity advisory council at the League of American Bicyclists and so I went to the the league's national bike summit um, that March and met the other people on the Equity Advisory Council. And um, that was a cool experience for me because up till then I had, you know, I was living in Seattle. I was processing all this field work I'd done in Los Angeles. I was really, really starting to be more and more aware that um, this focus that I had on um, race and class was like not the norm within uh, people who were talking about bicycling. And, you know, I was trying to figure out like, so what is the thing that, are there things that that are obvious to me that are less obvious to others, and I should be saying them? So it was helpful to go and meet other people around the country who um, were also working on bringing more of that awareness into the organized bike movement. And um, and so, I mean, that work had been happening for a number of years. There's a um, there's a network of cycling clubs around the country called um, the National Brotherhood of Cyclists. That is in particular um, a a gathering place for for black and um, multiracial cycling clubs. So some of the people who joined the Equity Advisory Council were from that kind of uh, background that, you know, their core focus had been recreational cycling. And then within recreational cycling, there were some people who also saw, you know, bicycling as this cool um, community or neighborhood empowerment tool. And so, um, some of the people from that space were Anthony Taylor, who lives in the Twin Cities, and, um, Neil Walker, who lives in, um, the Atlanta area. And, um, and then there was Helen Ho, who lived in, um, New York City, and Brian Drayton from the Oakland and Richmond area here in California, um, Keith Holt in Milwaukee, um, and uh, let's see, Ebony Hawkins from Chicago, and um, the the group was convened by a few people who worked at the League of American Bicyclists, um, which were Carolyn Chapansky and Hamza Sani, and then one of their board members um, at the time, Allison Hill Graves, and um, so they got us all together and. Like I said, I was just learning like, oh, wow, all these other people have been thinking about this stuff for years and they know each other. And um, huh, so, you know, again, what is what is the thing that I am thinking about that other people haven't been thinking about? How do I join this conversation? All that kind of stuff. And um, then so we had that Equity Advisory Council for several months. Um, oh, Elizabeth Williams from Long Beach, California, was another person. Uh, who is part of that first equity advisory council, Um, just in the interest of remembering people's names. Um, So, 
so basically what they had in mind at the league was creating, you know, this, this equity advisory council was part of an equity initiative that was working on addressing um, historical exclusion within the league itself, um, which seemed, you know, from my perspective, like a, a good idea. The league was an influential organization that um, created and maintained the standards for the most common model of bicycle education in this country through their league cycling instructor program, um, or LCIs. They do um, rating of the quote-unquote bike friendliness of cities and universities and businesses through their Bike Friendly America program. Um, so there were these, these, and then of course, national policy work. So there were these things that the league did that seemed like Hey, if you could get in and and examine, um, you know, what the barriers are to inclusion and come up with some cool ideas for um, moving them forward, you know, if you could change up these programs, that might have a big effect on how we do bicycle advocacy in the U.S. overall. Um, And so... They got funding at the league through their equity initiative to create um, an equity initiative manager position later in 2013, and um, I ended up getting that job. So I moved to Washington, D.C. Um, at the end of 2013 to work there, and the experience I went through um, was I it was a it was weird. It was weird um, because. Basically, it's like a program had been created prior to there being buy-in at the leadership level around this work. And so um, I was kind of set up for a a hard time and um, eventually left the organization in early 2015. But through that time, I connected with other people, um, again, who, you know, were thinking about these issues, working on these issues. And so um, by the beginning of last year, 2016, enough of us you know, we're in contact with each other that we started to think like, well, should we, should we like do something? You know, we, we tried working within these top, uh, bicycling organizations and ended up facing, you know, this, the culture was not welcoming to us and we all went through individual, you know, ups and downs. So, so should we, should we make our own thing? I mean, there's more of us out there. We know, like we found each other, so we know there must be more. Um, so we started working on having a convening, um, that was going to be, uh, a tie in with the, um, a conference called facing race that was going to happen in Atlanta in November, 2016. Um, facing race is a, a, conference that happens every two years put on by the organization race forward with a really strong focus on multiracial organizing um so um there is this rad individual named zara alabanza who um, lives in atlanta and does um a lot of different projects related to uh bicycling the outdoors african-american community health all those kinds of things and um and she was the one who had the the idea to anchor um this event that we were going to create um in atlanta because she was the local local organizer for the facing race conference so um once we knew we wanted to have a thing we started working on names for the thing and um, a really smart name that I think was a suggestion of um, Sara Suleiman, who's a journalist here in Los Angeles. Um, I think this was her idea, was to call it the untokening. 
um, and to put the focus on, you know, hey, there's a common experience of, of feeling like you've been invited to the table, but then when you get there, you don't actually get to contribute in a way that, um, in a way that you expected and in a way that's um, welcoming to the kind of uh, knowledge that you bring in. And um, so, and then we kind of left it at that, you know, we're like, we're going to have an event. And so we did. Um, Naomi Dorner, who is now in the Seattle area, was a really uh, core leader in putting the event together. I'm not someone who's, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a good event planner, but um, I did help with like programming and facilitating the event um, that we had in Atlanta. And it was, it was weird timing because our event was November 13th and something really big happened uh, a few days before that, as you guys may <laughs> recall. And so, um, so we had, we had, we have been, because of the, the nature of, the, you know, where things are in this country since last November, um, the untokening, you know, which started as a, as an event. And then we knew we wanted to do more with it. Um, but we're kind of still in the process of defining, uh, what needs we think we can serve. Um, we did like what we did at that day was a lot of small group discussions around the, these four main themes, which were, um, gentrification and displacement, street safety, um, community engagement and culture. And so what we got out of the day, in addition to like a strong sense of community and like good feelings among lots of people was a lot of notes and material, um, from those discussions. And so we have been working since then to, um, come up with some different products and, um, you know, statements out of, out of that wealth of material. And so we're still working on that. But one thing that kind of cropped up as an opportunity this spring was, um, you know, as I said, like those of us who are now calling ourselves the untokening, you know, we had been getting to know each other over the course of years. And a lot of us had worked for active transportation organizations. And a lot of us had had not great experiences working for active transportation organizations. So we had decided to do our own thing, you know, like there's a really, you know, hackneyed, hacky way of talking about social change. You can say, okay, sometimes you work through the system and try to bring in what you know to that. Sometimes you work outside of the system and build something new that's not allowable within the system. So we were kind of like, we'd done the former, now let's try the latter. But um, the the active transportation world hadn't gone away. Um, and there uh, there is some truth to the critiques that we were bringing into that space around a lack of leadership and a lack of um, clear vision and and a lack of an inclusive vision. And um, that has been manifested in some changes that have happened, um, both at the national level around active transportation advocacy and, um, you know, just a number of vacancies um, of influential groups, vacancies at the leadership level at influential groups around the country. And so, um, so I, you know, I'm someone who gets reached out to when there's like an ED position that's being recruited for. And I was getting these emails and I had a conversation with a recruiter and, um, and it made me think like, well, 
maybe this is a time where we can say something based on what we know from our network about like, hey, so you're recruiting for a new ED. Here are some things to keep in mind. Um, So a a group of us kind of quickly um, put our heads together and produced a a statement around leadership uh, in active transportation and then shared that out. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's been cool seeing that it's um, a useful resource for folks. And, um, and we do plan to, to that, that uh, statement or advice or whatever it's called um, isn't so much a product of, the untokening event itself as it was just, you know, the, a synthesis of the knowledge of a number of people who have some years of experience um, navigating that space. And it's very much in the spirit of the untokening, but we're still in development with um, a set of um, principles or like a a shared statement around some of the really major um, values that we heard um, at our event last November. And now we're also in the process of planning an Untokening California event um, that will be one year later in November of this year. Um, so I'm working on some of the programming for that. And I'm looking forward to seeing what what we come up with and, and where the Untokening goes next. I want to be respectful of everyone's time, Kyle, considering you're in a bus station. And Adoni, I know you have a niece to hang out with. And like <laughs> the question I've been mulling over the last like 10 minutes is, so large it may be unanswerable but i'm going to say it anyway and then you can either punt it or um um, maybe help give me some wisdom as kind of what do you see like through your research and experience like how do we as humans who you know have been known to you know not treat people as we should like how do we shift transportation to make sure that it does include communities that haven't had the, the privilege or the power to kind of own their, their public spaces or make those decisions for like Kyle and I are advocates listening kind of what are those like, how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> or how do we do it as a community of people? Well, I think um, the, the best answer I have for that at this point is like a really big answer in terms of, you know, one thing I saw when I was working in DC was that, um, you know, I thought, I thought it was going to be, I thought maybe at that point there were like people who didn't know that if you go to a mayor and say, Hey, you should install these bike lanes because it's going to increase property values in this neighborhood that like, maybe that's not a good, that, that doesn't sound good to everybody. Um, and that actually you might be very directly promoting, gentrification as an economic development model. And um, there's a lot of people who have some very valid critiques of that. I thought when I went and worked and was working at the league that, um, you know, if, if I just kind of explained that to more people within bicycle advocacy, then we could move away from that model um, or move away from that strategy. And what I learned was, okay, actually, so how things work in DC is you have Um, an industry of some kind, and then you have uh, lobbyists or advocates who work on behalf of that industry who who are going to Capitol Hill and have their network of contacts and whatnot who are trying to get more funding toward whatever that industry is. And so um, bicycle advocacy at the national level was very focused on increasing 
um, funding to go to infrastructure projects for bicycling, um, in part because there's a, a an industry of bicycle planning and engineering in this country. And um, I think that in large part, it's um, staffed by and run by people who are also bicycle advocates. And so there was just this, you know, nothing nefarious or like um, underhanded about it going on. It's just that like, oh, okay, so the national bicycle advocacy work was really focused on increasing business opportunities for the industry. And um, and so that industry would be like all the planning and design firms that get contracts with um, local governments to do bike plans, do infrastructure planning, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I think that we're not going to get to a more equitable way of doing transportation until we recognize that if a lot of the government spending on transportation is going to firms as opposed to community members, then by the time a project hits the ground, you know, because these projects are coming in along with a lot of other kinds of changes and market pressures that are going on, um, it's kind of debatable, uh, you know, as to what community benefit there is uh, or who's served by that. So I think we could be really well served by zooming out a bit and taking a bigger look at, you know, where is active transportation funding going in this country and how um, are we kind of relying on a trickle down model that actually is not trickling down. And, um, and I think that's, this might be, I don't know, this might be a tough thing for people to hear. I'm not sure because, um, you know, I know people, uh, I, I, as someone who, you know, has, been a bicycle advocate and worked on bicycle advocacy projects, I know that it's really hard to convince um, governments to be spending money on that stuff. So I think it's probably exhausting, you know, to hear like, oh, so you got some money. Well, you maybe are spending that money wrong. But I kind of think that's where we are. Like, here in California, we're probably in a different situation than lots of other states, but there is more and more active transportation funding coming down from the state level. And I think we have a real opportunity to consider, you know, how much of that funding can go to community groups that will then run programs as opposed to going to planning and design firms that will produce infrastructure projects. Because one of those ways is a much more direct way to share resources with a community than the other is. And, um, and I think there's also like good work that will definitely be expanded over the years around diversifying who's working in active transportation, um, planning and engineering and design and all that. Uh, I think that that's a good thing in terms of bringing more um, lived experiences into that professional work. But um, I just don't, I have talked to too many people um, who work at community-based organizations who have experienced the frustration of being a subcontractor on a project where, you know, they get some money to do some, you know, community engagement or one-off programming in their neighborhood that they care about a lot um, so late in the process on a project that it just doesn't go anywhere. And so um, I think that there's, some restructuring that can be figured out around, you know, how are we spending those those transportation dollars when they become available? Um, but again, I don't know how like horrifying or awful that sounds. If that's like 
super pie in the sky, if that's something people are already thinking about. I don't really know because I haven't been working in active transportation for the last couple of years. But from my perspective and and from um, the people I'm in communication with, that's really, we got to get down to the brass tacks of um, where is that money going? And it's one thing to talk about equity as a, as a touchy feely sort of, you know, we learn to understand each other project. And it's a very different thing to talk about equity as a reallocation of public resources. And um, I think in transportation, we have a long ways to go to um, getting to that level of equity. Adonia, this has been delightful. I don't, I don't think our listeners who have waited this long to hear from you are going to be disappointed. Uh, <laughs> I, I can, my, my only hope is that you'll consider coming back on the podcast next year once your book comes out and we can talk more specifically about uh, that and answering some of these other bigger questions uh, that you posed for us today. Great. Thanks. Hey, thanks for remembering that I have a book coming out because uh, <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, it's like, if you want to have an opportunity to reflect on stuff you've done, writing a book is a good way to do that. So, like, I've gotten a lot of good, you know, I've had a lot of aha moments for myself around, like, what is it I'm trying to do and how does it work and why has it been hard sometimes um, from the process of writing this book, which is called Bicycle Race. Um, and I don't remember the subtitle off the top of my head because it's really hot here in my apartment right now. So my brain is not going to work so well. But it's coming out next spring from Microcosm Publishing. And um, it's basically a, a memoir about um, my trajectory starting out working in bicycling and where I got to um, after working in D.C. And uh, I'm really excited about um, giving people something to read, I feel like I, um, I do have like, I know I have a really unique perspective on this stuff. And um, it's really cool that microcosm like hounded me into um, producing this book for them so that I can share some of what I've learned with um, a larger audience. So, um, so yeah, bicycle race coming out next year. Uh, thanks again for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon with your niece uh, and a great weekend. Um, and please, let's stay in touch uh, as we all go forward. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right. Thanks. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of The Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at The Bike Nerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com. 